Let's hear the word of our God. Again, he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding the thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. Let's shift down uh, to verse 14. The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on the rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while, then When tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it, And bear fruit thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Uh, Father, may these ancient words change us because they're your words. And your word is truth. And we believe in the power of the gospel to save men and women. And not just to save, but also to transform, to renew our minds and therefore transform us. And so may you be doing that as we listen to your word this morning. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, During the end of my time in Florida as a a pastor, uh, someone had told me that one of the retired guys had wanted to talk to me. Uh, it's funny because I really didn't know him. I knew of him. Uh, he was a rather prominent uh, pastor, not necessarily in terms of reputation, but he spoke a lot at, at Synod. I was guilty of the same sin at that time. <laughs> uh, but he was a pastor who now was dealing with blindness, and uh, he wanted to talk to me. So I remember sitting in our living room in Florida and talking with him for a while, and he told me a story a true story about a church planter. 
And this church planter uh, planted a church, and it was incredibly successful. Uh, it was over a thousand people. And, but he had that church planting bug, and so he couldn't just pastor that church. He decided to, pl- to plant another church. And that one was successful too, by all measures, just not as successful as the first, as it, pro- it was, had about 500 people. He caught that bug again and decided to plant yet another church. By all measures, uh, you and I would say it was a success because it was about uh, you know, 200 people. But for him, this represented a great failure. And he was incredibly discouraged. Uh, he, uh, contrary to Paul's encouragement in 2 Corinthians 4, lost heart and didn't just leave that particular work, that church, but left the ministry never to return again. And there's a lesson here, I think, about the, the power and therefore the danger of expectations. Uh, we can sometimes set ourselves up for losing heart uh, based on the expectations that we have. That's what happened with this church planter, and that's part of what happened, uh, or what Paul was warning about, as I mentioned in Second Corinthians chapter four, uh, is twice that thing about not let us not lose heart, because Paul knows that it is very easy for us to fall into that temptation of losing heart, particularly when it comes to ministry. Uh, that discouragement, that weariness, uh, that can easily set in. And here we have Jesus, I think, in his way of preparing the disciples so that they do not lose heart. Because right here is a a time of incredible popularity of the ministry of Jesus, uh, but there's a sense in which Jesus here is going to be saying to them, don't expect this that you see today to last. It's going to change. And By the way, as you begin to proclaim this message that I'm teaching to you, you're going to experience similar issues going forward. There may be times of great popularity, but don't be deceived and don't lose heart when it doesn't last. And that's a message, I think, that carries through all of the history of the church, not just the time of Jesus. So... Let's get into the text a little bit this morning, and maybe uh, some of those quizzical looks uh, will be satisfied. Um, But let's start with uh, verses 1 through 3 and verse 14 as well. How are we to proclaim the message of the kingdom? Uh, We see that once again the crowds have surrounded Jesus. Uh, Once again, he is up by the Sea of Galilee. Once again, Jesus is in a boat because there's so many people he can't stand on the shore and he needs to be safe. And uh, once again, Jesus is teaching. Jesus is instructing other people from this boat. He's instilling doctrine into the people who are listening. He's explaining this doctrine to the people. In other words, Jesus is fulfilling the calling that he expressed after his time in prayer in chapter 1, which we, if we remember back that far. Okay? Yes, he healed. Yes, he cast out demons. But he understood that his primary calling was to instruct the people. 
And so here again is Jesus in the regular rhythm of his life instructing people. And again, we hear of the great crowd that has caused him to be seated in a boat while they stand on the shore. And Mark tells us that Jesus spoke in parables. Now, we're used to a rather uh, narrow definition of parables at times. Uh, You know, those stories, those fictitious stories that are intended to uh, teach us something about the kingdom. And there are a lot of parables are just that. But this word is uh, a little broader in its meaning than we commonly give it credit for. It can be comparisons. Uh, It can be used for proverbs, those little pithy instructions that we find, not just in Uh, the book of Proverbs, but in other places, in addition to the narratives uh, that make particular points. And so Jesus is telling a number of parables to the people. Uh, There's a lot more that that Jesus teaches than Mark conveys because uh, Mark does not focus so much on the teaching of Jesus, but more the action of Jesus. Uh, And so this chapter it contains probably the longest section of teaching and instruction in Mark's whole gospel. And so we're going to get not just this parable, but a few more parables as well. But this is by no means all that Jesus taught. Mark is just giving us a sampling, an important sampling. Heightened, it's importance heightened by the fact that he included it. Out of all the things that he could have taught, or rather that uh, Mark could have written down that Jesus taught, he picks these particular parables for a reason, and I believe, uh, along with others, that it's connected to what has just happened. That it falls where it falls precisely because of the opposition that we begin to see and that Jesus is going to be talking about that opposition in many ways. Jesus begins this parable with, listen, look, or behold. He's trying to draw attention to what he's about to say because they needed to pay attention. His disciples needed to pay attention, and the crowds also needed to pay attention. This message as a whole is of great importance to their earthly as well as their eternal futures. James 1 reminds us, uh, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. Jesus wants them to act upon what they are about to hear, not just to passively listen to it. And that is something we need to remember every Sunday as we come. Uh, God's word is intended to be heard, to be believed, and to be acted upon out of that faith that we have. So Jesus begins to tell this parable that is called the parable of the sower, and we're not sure exactly why it's the parable of the sower. It probably should be called the parable of the soils, because that seems to be what the point is. But let's start with this. A sower went out to sow. Now, Jesus, later on, as we see in verse 14, interprets this as the sower sows the word. And so, while he's, ta- while he's speaking about farming, he's intending it to be about ministry. Okay. 
he's using the illustration, uh, the, a metaphor of farming to help them understand something about ministry. The sowing of the word. We see how broadly he sows the word. And we're going to see that there are soils that are represented here, four different kinds that are going to be mentioned. Uh, and some of them we kind of, in our minds, we go, why would he throw so, uh, seed there? Okay, let's not lose, uh, let's not go off on too many rabbit trails in this, uh, aside from recognizing the, the broad nature of where he sows. Uh, their process was a little different than ours. Uh, Jubilees 11.11 indicates to us uh, that they sowed seed and then plowed it in. Uh, they may have pl- it's possible they may have plowed first, sowed, and then plowed again. We're not sure, but we do know that they did plow after they sowed seed. Jesus, uh, or rather the sower here, does not seem to be overly concerned with where he sows the seed which is strange to us because in an agricultural society, the seed is everything. That's your future harvest. And so it it would seem wise to make sure that you're only going to spread it on places where it's going to grow, and yet we see that this does not happen. Jesus uh, is freely calling people to repent and believe the good news that he preaches because the kingdom is at hand. That common theme that runs uh, through his teaching as we see from chapter 1. In other words, we can think of what happens in Acts 17 when Paul says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And so Paul recognizes that there is a preaching uh, that takes place that is indiscriminate. Uh, that knows no bounds, Uh, that it doesn't matter where it falls, it it needs to be tossed there. The the word needs to be tossed in every place, every nook and cranny of creation. Not just where we think it might be fertile or might be able to find a place where it can grow. Some have in the history of the church tried to restrict the offer of the gospel to those uh, who are prepared to hear it. But we find others like Charles Spurgeon, Thomas Boston, the Erskine brothers. Some of those names might ring a bell with you, especially, hopefully, Thomas Boston. Um, But they defended what is called the free offer of the gospel or the indiscriminate preaching of the gospel, that we're not to look for signs that someone's ready, but we are to freely preach this message of grace found in Jesus Christ because he is, um, as the Messiah, he was obedient for us. He perfectly obeyed the law of God for us. He lived the life that we were supposed to live and couldn't live. But this same Jesus also died upon the cross, bearing the curse of God for our disobedience, dying the death that we deserve, and that this Jesus rose again from the dead. 
that this Jesus has now ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty from where He rules and He pours out His Holy Spirit so that His people have power to proclaim that same message. We are not to think about who might be receptive. We are to, in other words, to to simply be heralds of the kingdom, whether we're in hostile territory or what we might consider to be friendly territory. God will, in fact, save all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, just as he says in Romans 10, which is a quotation from the Old Testament. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. This is intended to be the promise that drives where we send our message. And so let us be indiscriminate. Let us be generous. Let us be gracious. Let us be free in the preaching of the Word, uh, even as we think about our new neighbors next door. Let us not simply wait for signs to think, hey, they might be friendly to the message, uh, but let us be bold in, in letting them know that Jesus reigns, that Jesus saves. And so we see from the beginning of this parable that we are called to be indiscriminate in the sowing of the Word of God. So that sets us up for the the first two soils that we're about to meet. If the message is proclaimed graciously, freely, and indiscriminately, what can we expect? Let's get back to that idea of expectations. And let's look at this from verses 3 and 15. Jesus, as I mentioned, uh, provides three negative responses and one positive response to the sowing of the Word. Although there are three that look positive. We're going to address the first two of these this week and then the next two next week. So we see that some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Okay? The path is that well-worn place. We've all seen paths. We see them even in the desert. Uh, when you go hiking, okay, you, see, you follow the path. And what's significant about the path is that so many people have walked on it, that one, it's cleared of vegetation, okay, so you can walk freely, and two, the ground has been beaten down hard so that you're not slipping and falling, uh, which is really handy if you're walking uh, near the top of a canyon. You don't want to fall into the canyon, right? Okay, good. <laughs> it's a bad thing to fall into the canyon. And so this is, land, this is ground that is hard-packed, okay? And so when the seed comes, he's not going to plow it. It's basically seed that is scattered on hard land, and it becomes bird food. The birds come, they take it away, and they devour it. What's really happening? What does Jesus intend by this? And he explains this uh, when he explains it to his disciples. When these people hear, meaning that there's this group of people, and when they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the seed. This is a hard word. Let's keep in mind for a second here. For all of the soils, it's the same sower. In this case, Jesus. And then later would be his apostles. 
uh, and then it could be, you know, all the church leaders and then us, okay? Same sower for all four soils. It's the same seed uh, that is tossed everywhere. The difference in result is going to be about where it lands. It's going to be about the soil itself. And in this case, it is packed earth, and therefore the seed sits on top and simply becomes bird food. What, is really Je- what Jesus is getting at here is that the soil reflects our hearts. It reflects what our hearts do with the gospel when it lands there. The message that is sown in our hearts. And, and I want you to, to notice that. Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. This word is sown inside these people, so to speak. They, they hear it. It enters them. But it finds no place. And it is soon snatched away by the evil one. Why does it find no place in them? Well, we see that people naturally have uncircumcised hearts. We see that in Deuteronomy, and we've talked about that uh, a, a fair amount in the last few weeks. Okay, Uncircumcised hearts, unresponsive hearts, rebellious hearts. We see similarly, uh, they were described as having hearts of stone in Ezekiel in the promise of the new covenant. God's going to remove the heart of stone, which is there by nature in Adam, and he's going to give a heart of flesh. But these are the people who have the heart of stone. The seed bounces off. It's not a word problem. It's not a preacher problem. It's a heart problem. They do not understand because the Lord has not yet given understanding to them. They don't have ears to hear, sorry, yeah, ears to hear and eyes to see um, as he instructs. But right now, because of sin, they're blind and unhearing. And as a result, Satan comes and takes the word away through deception, just like he did in the Garden of Eden with Eve. He whispers things to them like, did God really say, you won't really die? So that people believe that there is either no God or that God is just a big bully who really doesn't want what's good for you. He's not good. Or that God can't deliver on his threats because he's weak and impotent and therefore there is no penalty for doing what you want. That somehow God stands in the way of your self-fulfillment. That somehow uh, God is, has it out for you and does not want what is good for you. That is the message of the evil one. That is the, the, the message that our legalistic hearts tend to hear because they've been bent by sin. These people end up trampling over Jesus on their way to hell and the judgment that their sins deserve. This is a hard thing to hear, but we have to say it. 
They do this in part because, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, Satan has blinded their eyes to the glory of Jesus. They don't see how worthy he is. They don't see how good he is. They don't see how wise he is. They don't see how merciful he is. They don't see who he is. And all of his glory. And so they think he's unimportant, that he's irrelevant, or that he's somehow dangerous to them. And so Satan takes this word away through these lies that he speaks. And what Jesus wants his disciples to recognize is that many of the people in that large crowd that forced Jesus off the shore into the boat, that many of those people are there to hear Jesus, but they weren't there to obey Jesus and believe Jesus. That Satan was going to steal the word from their hearts, though he sowed it there. The story is told of um, Ben Franklin, He was alive, of course, during the time of the Great Awakening, and uh, he was not immune to the, the words that uh, were said of George Whitfield and his powerful preaching. And so Ben Franklin went to hear George Whitfield speak, and he was amazed at how Whitfield spoke. He was caught up in, in just how good of a public speaker George Whitfield was. And he spoke very highly about George Whitfield and his abilities to speak to such a large audience. But what Ben Franklin was not impressed by was the message of George Whitfield. And Ben Franklin did not believe. He, was, he wanted to hear as if it was a show, as if it was a spectacle as if it was an entertainment opportunity and not that his life, his soul, was on the line. The scribes and the Pharisees that we've met in the previous chapter who were criticizing Jesus, the ones in particular who claim that Jesus is possessed by Satan, would be amongst these groups who the word is sown and they walk away unchanged, like Ben Franklin as opposed to what we see in James 1 in a different spot in verse 21. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Like Ben Franklin, they're unwilling to put away their filthiness. They're unwilling to put away their rampant wickedness or even their ordinary wickedness. And there's a lot of that. Many ordinary people, loving their ordinary sins, consider the good news to be useless news. It's sort of like hearing about an earthquake in the Arctic. Big whoop. That's how it hits them. But our calling is to proclaim this message to all that we can, not to focus on our success rate, not to indicate uh, or, or try to find signs that someone will or will not listen. For instance, 
the Articles of the Synod of Dort. Some of you know what the Synod of Dort was, and that was a defense of what, what later would become called the Five Points of Calvinism. Okay. It says in one of its articles, it is not the fault of the gospel, meaning the seed, nor of Christ offered therein, nor of God, who calls men by that gospel and confers upon them various gifts that those who are called by the ministry of the word refuse to come and be converted. The fault lies in themselves. And this parable is right in line with that statement of doctrine. The fault is not in the sower, the fault is not in the seed, the fault is in the one who hears and refuses to believe. And so, as we proclaim the message of Jesus, we should expect the deception of Satan when we sow the word. So that answers our second question. Expect the deception of Satan when you sow the word. So what's the second problem that emerges when we generously sow the word? And we see that in verses 5 and 6 and then explained in verses 16 and 17. Uh, We hear, we read of seed that fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil. And so this is something that's a little different from growing up in New England. Uh, I grew up in New England and it seemed, you know, we had a garden in our backyard. And some of you are familiar with this concept, it seemed like we grew rocks in our garden. Because every spring I'd be sent out by my mom or my dad, and uh, there would be a new batch of rocks that I had to pull out of the garden so that we could plant some vegetables. You know, and of course every winter what happens, of course, is the frost and the freeze happens, and uh, when it starts to melt, the, the soil goes under the rocks that are there, so they get higher. And every year they get higher and higher, and it looks like you have a new batch of rocks every year. It's just really exciting. It's hard being a farmer in New England. That's why they grow potatoes in Vermont, uh, Maine. Um, but it's not that. That's not what Jesus is getting at. What Jesus is getting at is the common problem that they had in that part of the world of limestone, where there'd be this thin layer of topsoil and then unseen to you would be this large stretch of limestone. And so the seed comes and lands on the soil. It germinates. I mean, it's, it's not packed down, so it's able to get into the soil. Uh, and it's germinating, and it begins to sprout, and it begins to sort of spread, but you, you have a problem in that the roots can't get beyond the limestone, and there's no depth that's there. And so Jesus says that it immediately sprung up and when the sun rose it was scorched and we're familiar with this part withered away. If you don't have your drip irrigation going or uh, you're not like my wife or son who are out there watering things they begin to wither away in the desert because the sun is hot. We see this word used in chapter 3 of the man in the synagogue who had the withered or dried out hand that was useless. Okay? It sprouts, but it can't grow because it has no root in itself. 
Jesus explains this. Again, did my thing go off? I'll try not to move then. Um, man, I hate being chained to the pulpit. Um, <clears throat> the seed is not the problem. The seed germinates, as I said. The seed sprouts, but the roots, of course, can't get enough water. They are, according to Jesus, the people who hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. It all looks good. They look converted. Because they, unlike the ones uh, you know, that falls on the path, there's a response here. It's a response of joy that initially takes place. The gospel, I want to be clear about this, the gospel does produce joy. But the joy that the gospel produces is not tied to our earthly circumstances. And we're going to find, as we press on here, that that's the problem. That their joy was tied to earthly circumstances. For a season, Jesus says, everything was well. But when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, they fall away. The word brings pressure or affliction. This would be what Elliot uh, Clark talks about in terms of cultural opposition. Okay? Uh, where people will not like what you say, they will not like what you believe, they'll, they'll uh, sort of make fun of you. You believe in the resurrection of Jesus. You believe that uh, you, should res- you should restrain your desires for pleasure. What kind of fool are you? You believe that you shouldn't look out for numero uno? You don't want to worship our gods as part of our guild so that you can have your job? These are, these are cultural expressions of opposition. It can be family, it can be work, it can be friends, but there is an opposition to the word that results in exclusion, as we talked a bit about last week. But there's also, at times, persecution. Judicial opposition, where it's not just your friends don't like you, but now the government doesn't like you because you're one of those people. You're one of those people who doesn't worship the right God. Or, if it's a socialist country, you're one of those people that worships a God. Let me say something especially to you kiddos who are in public school. Every socialist experiment with a government has denied that there is a God because the state is God. It's not just a different economic system. It is a different worldview and is a godless worldview. Okay, enough politics for today. And it's not really politics. It's about faith. Because it's a rejection of the fact that there is a God. And they persecute those who think there is. What do you think? 
China persecutes not just Christians, they persecute Muslims, the Gulong Falong, any religion they persecute. They're an equal, equal opportunity persecutor of faith in China. Okay? Because they, they believe the state is God. And it was the same way in Russia, same way in Vietnam, it's the same way in North Korea, where the dictator... I mean, I thought I was going away from politics. I'm sorry. Um, same way. And so persecution arises, and, and some of them were going... Some of these early believers or people who were loosely associated with Jesus, they're hearing the message, they're excited about the message, and then they begin to experience uh, their families kind of shunning them. They begin to experience the fact that the synagogue doesn't lead or the rabbi doesn't like it and the elders excommunicate them. They're going to run into the thing, the situation in Rome where they're going to be classified as an illegal religion and therefore be persecuted. And when the gospel benefits that appeal to them begin to shrink in the light of its obligations and hardships, they're going to leave. Though they looked like Christians, they just wanted the benefits. They didn't want the real Christian life. And so they are scandalized, or, and they scandalize that Greek word scandalon from which we get scandal takes place. Many in this crowd would shrink back when faced with excommunication, when faced with ostracization. I hope I said that right. When faced with prison, when faced with being sent into the Colosseum. And so expect the affliction of the world when you sow the word. It's going to happen. Not all the time, but some of the time. So if we were to wrap this up in the kind of one statement, the, we are to sow the word knowing that some will be deceived or fall away. The crowds were so great as we saw that they forced Jesus from the shore into a boat for his own safety. Jesus wants to prepare his disciples for what is to come in his own ministry and in their ministry. This parable speaks to Christian ministries over the centuries. And so we find here that it's our responsibility to sow the word generously and indiscriminately. We freely preach the gospel whenever we have opportunity. The issue with ministry is not necessarily the one who sows, nor is it the word, but it is the heart of the person who hears it. And we see that the first two heart problems that result in in parts of the crowd disappearing over time, the first heart problem is that of a hard or stony heart where Satan deceives people into thinking the gospel is irrelevant or even dangerous. The second one is is the, the rocky hearts in whom the gospel seems to initially flourish, but when affliction or persecution arises, they fall away or run away. Do you hear the gospel 
in either of these ways? Does it just sort of bounce off you week after week? Do you like the positives, but don't like the gospel obligations and demands? Do you need a change of heart? We'll talk more about that next week, but know this now, you can't change your heart. Only Christ can change your heart, and that's what we'll hit on in part next week. Let's pray.